And good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, Chapter 8. If you're new with us, we welcome you. It's good to see you this morning. Just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Currently, we are in Chapter 8, where we came across one of the 7 a.m. statements of Jesus that John built his Gospel around. As we said last week, Every time Jesus called himself, I am, he was declaring that he was the voice from the burning bush where God identified himself to Moses as the great I am. And so as we study John 8, understand that the whole chapter is built around Jesus' declaration of divinity, which led to a rather heated confrontation between himself and his enemies. Now, I have uh, labeled this main point the heated confrontation, and uh, in it, Jesus and his enemies go four rounds. So round one, I'm calling light and darkness. Once again, verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Verse 12, you see the contrast between light and uh, in darkness. And so this very heated confrontation guy started with Jesus declaring himself to be, again, Yahweh, the great I am and Messiah. And it ended with his enemies picking up stones to kill him, verse 59 tells us. And uh, the, the them in verse 12 refers to the scribes and Pharisees. We know that from verse 3. Now listen, they were the scholars of Judaism. They were the scholars of Judaism. When Jesus called himself the light of the world, or in other words, he called himself, I am the light of the world, it would have immediately reminded them that Yahweh was likened to light in their scriptures many times. A couple examples, Psalm 27, verse 1, Psalm 84, verse 11, many other places. And so again, when Jesus proclaimed, I am, and I like to hyphenate that, because I see it as a title followed by a description, as we have talked about. I am being the name of God. When Jesus proclaimed, I am the light of the world, he was claiming to be the God of Israel, the radiant Shekinah glory. It was the Shekinah glory, which is the presence of God in the form of a pillar by fire, excuse me, in the form of a pillar of fire by night. That was the light that lit their ancestors' way through the darkness of the wilderness for those 40 years before entering the promised land. When Jesus declared himself to be the Shekinah glory in human form, it immediately caused his enemies to bristle with condemnation toward him, causing the Pharisees to fire back in verse 13. You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now, this statement was their way of putting Jesus on trial for blasphemy, which, by the way, was a capital offense in Israel, uh, punishable by stoning. And they had put him on trial for blasphemy, of course, for, for claiming to be God in human form. According to Old Testament law, every fact in a legal matter, every fact, had to be established by the testimony of more than one witness. The Pharisees had in mind the law God established in Deuteronomy, in our Bibles, chapter 19, verse 15, 
which says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter in a Jewish court of law shall be established. Since Jesus was the only one testifying on his own behalf, they claimed his testimony was not enough, was insufficient to prove his case and establish his claim of deity. In verse 13, what they're essentially saying is this, you bear witness of yourself, therefore your witness is not true. To which Jesus responds in verse 14, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. Jesus is telling these wicked men, look, I don't need to prove to you who I am. I know who I am. Jesus Christ was going through no identity crisis. Uh, I don't know, some of you are too young to remember back in the 80s, the Martin Scorsese's film, The Last Temptation of Christ where he presented Jesus as this conflicted person, didn't know what his role was, why he was on the earth, going through a major identity crisis. That's not our Jesus, all right? Our Jesus knows exactly who he is, why he came to the earth, what his mission was, and so on. And so I'll paraphrase what he's saying. Look, I don't need to prove to you who I am. I know who I am. I know where I came from. I'm God, second person of the Trinity. I was sent here by the Father, and as soon as I'm done with the work, he sent me to do the work of redemption, going to the cross and so on. I'm going back to the Father. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone. But I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Or in other words, trustworthy is the idea. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Jesus is saying that, look, even if I was the only one testifying to my divinity, that wouldn't mean my testimony was untrue. But my testimony is corroborated by another, the Father who sent me. He also testifies. He also bears witness of who I am. Now, guys, this was not the first time they had this argument with him. I don't know if it was the same Pharisees. You don't have to turn there, but back in chapter 5, this same argument uh, was going on, where they wanted him to prove, you know, uh, you talk uh, of yourself, well, you know, your testimony uh, means nothing all by itself. Where is the corroborating testimony of other witnesses? And so you can read that, but at one point, in John 5, 37, Jesus said, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. How did the Father testify on Jesus' behalf to corroborate Jesus' testimony of himself, that he was, and of course is, the Son of God and divine? Well, first of all, through the miracles Jesus did. We know from Scripture that the miracles Jesus did were actually done by the Father through the Holy Spirit. All right? And that was one of the ways the Father testified to who the Son was, uh, that the Father was giving his testimony by empowering the Son to do the very miracles he had been doing. This all proved to then Jesus', uh, Jesus divinity and established his testimony of himself. Turn to John 14. 
And guys, while you're doing that, I was telling first service that for us in this room, evangelicals, if Jesus said it, that's good enough for us. All right? Well, if Jesus said that, I'm in. It's good enough for me. But he's talking to a group of Jewish leaders, unbelievers. These were the theologians of his day. These were men who were highly educated, very learned, snobs that looked down on anybody who didn't have their uh, background, their uh, accreditation from a, a, a university. And so naturally, they wanted to find fault with Jesus everywhere because they refused to accept who he claimed to be. They refused to accept his testimony of himself. So he had to prove to them, look, you want to take this into a court of law? Fine. We'll go by those standards. Of course, the Pharisees and scribes were very big on impressing the law on others, but if they wanted to do something contrary to the law, they always found a loophole to excuse themselves. But Jesus, okay, fine. You're saying that my testimony alone is not enough to prove what I'm saying is true? John 14, verse 10, this he spoke in the upper room. I'm just pulling this one out because even his disciples began to wonder at one point, is he really who he claimed to be? And so he assures them on the same basis, says, look, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me, listen, he does the miracles, the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. That's his way of saying we are one, we're both God, along with the Spirit, the Trinity. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves, the miracles. They testify. They have been done by the Father through the Spirit, testifying of who I am. When the church was finally born on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And Peter stood up to give the first spirit-filled message of the church age. He begins in verse 22, speaking to Israel now, uh, Jewish people, men of Israel. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, listen, a man attested by God to you. In other words, a man who was testified by God to be his son, to be the Messiah. He did that. He, he, how did he testify of the son's, you know, credentials, give, give the son credentials? Through the miracles, wonders, and signs which God did, the Father did, through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So Jesus said, if you're not going to believe me for the words I speak, believe me for the works that I do. Because the Father is doing the works, and it is his way of confirming that I am who I claim to be. Of course, the Father himself gave verbal testimony on the Son's behalf. You remember twice the Father from heaven said, uh, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He did that once when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. And then again, while Peter, James, and John were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and God spoke from the clouds saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And so as the testimony of two witnesses was required in a Jewish court of law to validate a judgment, Jesus had those two testimonies. He gave witness to himself, and so did his father. When Jesus told these men in verse 15, 
you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. What exactly is he talking about since back in chapter 5, verse 22, he said the Father judges nobody, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So the Father has said to Jesus, you judge everyone, but Jesus here says, I don't judge anybody. Let me just say this. First of all, the Pharisees were the very definition of those who judged the book by its cover. In other words, they judged according to outward appearance and worldly standards. But even more to the point, they often placed their man-made rules and traditions on a higher level than God's law, God's word. This blinded them to God's truth and caused them to judge Jesus and others, of course, based on what appeared to them to be right. Uh, there's a lot of that going around today. We're living in a time where it doesn't seem like evidence matters to people. It's only what they feel is true. And so I think some good people are being destroyed or seeking to be destroyed because it doesn't matter what the facts say or the evidence points to. I believe you're wrong. I believe you're guilty. In a way, the Pharisees and scribes were doing that. Again, uh, boy, they put on their lawyer hats when they wanted to use the law to blast somebody else. But when they wanted to get around it, they always found a little nice loophole that they could, you know, uh, and didn't Jesus blast them for that in Matthew 23? Uh, you know, said one of the things he said, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You, you lay heavy burdens on people that you yourselves are not willing to move with one of your fingers. You always lay the heavy law on people, but you always find loopholes to get out of doing it, right? Jesus rebuked them for this very thing earlier in John 7, verse 24, when he said, Don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. It's not about how you feel. It's about what God's word says. And don't, you know, don't, Put the word of God on the side and just judge people by your feelings. Guys, however, I think more than anything else, when Jesus said, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one, he was in effect saying that at his first coming, he came to save and not to condemn. And the Greek word means to condemn in the sense of to judge as guilty in a court of law. Turn to John 3. He states that clearly. And let's pick it up in John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, Jesus is speaking, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world, listen, to condemn the world. He didn't sent his son into the world to judge, not at his first coming, but that the world through him might be saved. And guys, until Jesus Christ comes back, we are still operating under his mandate. It is not for us to judge another person in the sense of saying they are irredeemable. 
I'm not saying we can't judge actions in the church and confront people and try to hold them accountable to doing the right thing. We are accountable to each other. I was telling first service, when I think of this, I think, though, that we are not allowed to say our group is the only group that has the truth, the only group that does right. And of course, you got some holiness churches. They have a whole list, depending on the group, of how many things you can't do. And ladies, you wear your hair a little too short, you're going to hell. Guys, a little too long, you're going to hell. They've got all these rules and regulations that if you don't adhere meticulously to their standards, it means that you are lost, you're irredeemable. We are not to operate under that kind of a mandate. We are to love sinners. We are to offer them hope. We are to say, look, I don't care how bad your life has been, how wicked your life has been. I'll tell them first service. I just read an article about an assassin, a paid assassin, a hitman, who killed over 300 people in his life. And he received Christ as his Lord and Savior. Nobody's irredeemable this side of glory. Nobody's irredeemable. And sometimes God saves the worst of us to teach the rest of us that no, nobody is hopeless. Anybody can be saved. Thief on the cross. Thank God for that guy. He validated deathbed conversions for everybody. So Jesus coming the first time didn't come to judge. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. However, when he comes the second time, that's a different story. He will judge unbelievers for their wickedness before establishing his kingdom. I'll just read you a couple of scriptures. You can write them down. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. When he comes back, he's going to raise the dead. He's going to judge the living and the dead before establishing his kingdom. 1 Peter 4, 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes the second time, he will come to judge and to establish a kingdom that will never end. Guys, I've said it before. Let me say it again. Jesus Christ is going to be one of two things to every person who has ever lived. Either he's going to be loving Savior or righteous judge. And what you do with Jesus now will determine what he becomes to you then. Today is the day of salvation. You want Jesus to be your loving Savior? He is absolutely willing to do that. In fact, he said, please come to me. If you're weary, heavy, come to me. I'll give you rest. Uh, he wants all men to be saved and women and come to the knowledge of the truth. Today is the day of salvation. If anybody wants to receive Christ, he is more than willing to be their loving Savior. If they reject him now and die, they'll stand before him someday, and then it will be too late. He will be their righteous judge. Back to John 8, verse 18 again. I am one who bears witness of myself, Jesus said, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Verse 19. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Now, folks, at a quick glance, you might be prone to think they were asking Jesus an honest question. 
but you'd be wrong. This wasn't a sincere question. It was intended to be a stinging accusation. You see, ever since Jesus' birth, accusations had been flying around that Mary had secretly had an affair on Joseph and that Jesus was a bastard child. And when he began his public ministry, his enemies, who thoroughly rejected any claim of, his, of him being virgin-born, well, they resurrected the accusation, no pun intended, and now seek to use it to impugn Jesus' claims that God is his Father. Now, guys, right here, this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees becomes very heated. And before it's over, they would accuse him of being a child of fornication, illegitimate, verse 41, and he would call them children of the devil, verse 44. So button you, but, <laughs> fasten, I should say, fasten your seatbelts. It gets pretty crazy uh, from here on up to the rest of the chapter. Uh, but verse 19, then he said, then they said to him, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Now I just want to stop and just say this. When people came to Jesus with sincere questions, he had nothing but kindness and would take all day, I'm convinced. People come to me with sincere questions. Sometimes somebody will come to me and say, Pastor, I have a dumb question. No, no question is dumb. If it's a sincere question, I'll spend all afternoon if you need me to. If you're coming with a sarcastic question, which is nothing more than a veiled accusation, I got no time for that. I got no time for that. You can see in Jesus' tone, these guys were hard-hearted unbelievers. They had no intention of softening their position toward him. They had no intention of accepting him as their Messiah and Savior. No way at all. Their hearts were hard. That's why he would say to them in just a minute, you're going to die in your sins. He already knew their fate was sealed. But he comes across with a sarcastic tone here. Where's your father? That wasn't an honest question. You don't know my father. You know nothing about my father, nor me. If you had known me, or you might, if you would have known my father, you would have known me also, and vice versa. In the Greek, the word know there is a very intimate knowledge. The kind of uh, intimate knowledge of God that comes when, when we give our heart to Christ and are born again. And are connected to him, the, the whole trinity, uh, by the spirit, right? And we enter into that very deep um, relationship, communion with him. That no matter how religious a person is, they know nothing about. He's talking to theologians here. He's talking to academics. He's talking to men who had their degree and looked down at everybody else who didn't have a degree in the, uh, you know, uh, Jerusalem U, all right, Judaism U. How could a carpenter from Hicksville, the Galilee, have anything to say that would be of any value to us or the scholars. But the only way to really know God is to invite Jesus into your heart where 
the Trinity moves in. And you have a relationship with God that Peter said angels desire to look into. They stand in the presence of God. But they know nothing of what it means to have God inside of them. They want to know what is that about. One pastor had this to say, said, and I quote, in referring to Jesus' parentage, the Pharisees thought they had some special intelligence. <laughs> I don't know, they paid some character and they got some intelligence. Oh, he wasn't even born of Mary, you know, and wait, I can't wait to, we can't wait to get this out, you know, hit him with this at the next debate, right? So, you know, uh, they thought they had some special intelligence or scandal on him. So they must have thought. Watch how he reacts, they said to themselves, when we reveal what we know about him. But Jesus made it clear they didn't know anything about him or his father, end quote. So verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. As we said a couple of weeks ago, guys, verse 20 is uh, probably the most important detail in the entire chapter. If you don't understand what verse 20 is talking about, you're not going to appreciate uh, the whole context or the whole uh, chapter, chapter 8. I, will, I don't have time to get back into it. Uh, you can go back and get the study from a couple weeks ago uh, called The Light of the World Part 1 because we, uh, we did go into this in, in great detail. But here's the idea. The temple consisted of a series of courts, courtyards. Uh, the court of the women which is where the Jewish women could congregate and go no further, was where the temple treasury was. This is the place that people went to give offerings to God, and so on. And, uh, but it was a very special place, especially during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, you have to understand what went on to fully appreciate this whole light of the world statement by Jesus. I'm the light of the world. You've got to understand what went on in that, in that courtyard during the Feast of Tabernacles. Go online and you can uh, listen to that. So we're looking, though, at the first uh, point under our main point, which I've called round one, okay, uh, light and darkness. Again, I'm going to read verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to, the, uh, to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. As we have said, light is often used in the scriptures to represent spiritual truth, and darkness is often used in Scripture to represent spiritual error or deception. Now, guys, it's interesting that pretty much every unsaved person in the world thinks they have light, quote-unquote. Pretty much every person on the planet thinks that they have light, truth, however they define it. If science is their God, then scientific truth like naturalism which evolution is based in, is their light. Naturalism, of course, is the belief that everything came about through natural processes without, without any divine or supernatural input from a god. This is the basis of evolution. Uh, all evolutionists, pretty much, are uh, naturalists. It's the reigning ideology in our universities, uh, in, in all our centers of learning today in the West. And uh, the idea that, uh, that everything didn't come from God, it came through a big explosion that took place 12 to 18 uh, billion years ago. They don't know, all right? And uh, that's what brought about everything. There's a natural explanation for the existence of everything. We don't need God. 
That's just for superstitious, uh, uneducated people. Now, if their God is pantheism, well, that's the belief that an energy or force flows through everything and everyone which, blind, which binds all of us together as God. Now, let me just stop here and say this. I was telling first service that uh, Chewbacca died. Chewbacca, he's gone. And, uh, of course, Chewbacca was that character, that furry guy that played on Star Wars. Hans Solo's sidekick, right? Do you know that George Lucas, who created the Star Wars thing, was very much into Hinduism, which believes in the force that fills the universe, ties us all together. We're all God, all right? And Lucas, big into the force, and uh, basically said that those Star Wars movies, and I like them, I'm not putting them down, but I understand what's behind them, okay? That those Star Wars movies was his way of promoting the religion of the force. That's what he said. George Lucas is the Billy Graham of the Force. Just in case you're interested, I just, you know, why, why are you getting off on this? Well, you know, we're here talking about pantheism and the Force, and, you know, I, but just to let you know, Chewbacca's gone, uh, you know, so. But, but, if, but if pantheism is your God, then metaphysical doctrine is your light, all right? What the sad thing about it is everybody thinks they have truth. Everybody thinks they have light. But Jesus said in Matthew 6, 23, if the, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Why? Because once you convince somebody that your truth is truth, that whatever you're peddling is light, and people embrace it, they don't think it's darkness, they think it's light. Try to get them to let go of something they've embraced with all their heart, back them out of that belief system, and then turn them down the path of God's truth. Very difficult. Extremely difficult. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you traverse land and sea to make one proselyte to Judaism, but when you convert that person, you make them twice the son of hell as yourselves. Acknowledging that once a person puts their faith in something, and believes it to be true, very difficult to get him to back away from it and come down the right path to God's truth. Many people have embraced darkness thinking it's light. That's what she said. If the light that is in you is dark, if the light, quote unquote, is in you is darkness, wow, how great is that darkness? Because you think it's light. You're not looking for light anymore, all right? One commentator weighed in on verse 12, quoting it, first of all, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He said, In these words, then, Christ defined the state of the natural man. The unregenerate have light, quote-unquote. They are capable of weighing moral issues. They have a conscience which either accuses or excuses them. Paul talked about that in Romans 2, verse 15. And they have the capacity to recognize the innumerable evidence which testifies to the existence and uh, natural attributes of the great creator. Paul said that in Romans 1.19. So that they are without excuse, Romans 1.20. So God has made himself so uh, clear that he exists through his creation that anybody who looks out into the creation and says there is no God, uh, Paul said God will hold them personally accountable on the day of judgment. Because the creation gives testimony to God. It, it bears the glory. It's 
the, 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 the creation is, is the, bears the glory of God. It shows forth his handiwork and so on. He goes on to say, they have these things. They have moral light and they uh, have enough light in their thinking to, to know truth from error many times, not always. But spiritual light they don't have, he said. Consequently, though they are endowed with intelligence and moral discernment, spiritually they are in darkness. And it was because of that uh, reason the Savior said, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Of course, Jesus was uh, and is the Word of God. That's how John opened his gospel, right? Calling Jesus the Word. We know that in Psalm 119, verse 105, the psalmist said, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Jesus Christ, the Word of God is Jesus in print. Psalm 40, verse 7, the volume of the book, it's written what? Of me. Okay? So if you talk about following Jesus, who's the light, we talk about following the Word of God, which is Jesus in print. All right, round one, light and darkness. Round two, life and death. Verse 21, Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. Now, of course, by saying this, Jesus was telling these religious but unredeemed men that at one point he was going to go back to his father. They would seek him. What does that mean? I believe it's a reference to the fact they would seek his crucified body as to where it had been buried. Because, of course, they knew his disciples uh, said, or Jesus told them, that after he was uh, killed, he would rise again. And that's why they had the Roman soldiers uh, stationed at the tombstone, the, uh, the tomb site, right? Because they were afraid of that. Well, then, of course, that resurrection Sunday morning, he stepped from the tomb alive uh, and then appeared to his disciples who began to preach he's risen from the dead. Well, a lot of these guys didn't believe that. They thought the disciples must have stolen the body. So you're going to seek me. I believe what he said. You're going to try to find where my crucified body has been laid because you want to squash any talk of the resurrection. But what he's telling them, you're not going to find me, my body. It's going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to return back to my father uh, again uh, after that. And, uh, but the place I am going to, heaven, you cannot come to. You cannot come to. Look, guys, these men rightly understood that Jesus was talking about his death. However, they wrongly assumed he was talking about committing suicide. One author said, I quote, Ironically, these were those who were plotting to take his life asked if he intended to commit suicide. They understood that when Jesus said, Where I am going, you cannot come, Jesus was speaking of his death. They understood that. The Jews abhorred suicide and believed that those who killed themselves went to the blackest part of hell. Since they assumed they were going to heaven, the Jews mockingly suggested that Jesus must be speaking of killing himself, in which case he would go to hell. But he would not die by his own hand, but rather at the hands of those very men who at that moment were mocking him. And the place to which he was referring, where he would go, but they could not follow, was not hell, but heaven, end quote. All right, verse 22 again. So they said, you know, 
will he kill himself? Is he going to commit suicide? Because he says, you know, where I go, you cannot come. Verse 23, and he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Guys, there are two states of existence that all human beings belong to. Two entirely different worlds or kingdoms that they live in. It's what the New Testament refers to as the state of spiritual life and then the state of spiritual death. Spiritual life is a state of existence that is entered into when a person receives Jesus Christ as their Savior and is born again. You can read about that in John 3. At that instant, they enter into Christ and pass from one state of existence to another. They pass from death to life. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, listen, but is passed from death to life. Look, spiritual death is a state of existence that a person belongs to when they have been born only once, physically. But not born again, spiritually. Every one of us born into this world is born in Adam. That's just the biblical designation for those who have been born physically. But it also designates a state of being. A state of being. Everyone born into this world is born in Adam. And as such, we are born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. In that state, a person belongs to Satan's kingdom and is under his control. He is their master, 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are the children of God, but the whole world of unbelievers is under the control of the evil one. We didn't know uh, we belonged to the kingdom of Satan before we got saved, started reading the Bible. Um, we just did what we wanted, you know. Um, listened to what we wanted to listen to. Thought what we wanted to believe in what we wanted to believe. Did what we wanted to do. We had no idea we were being controlled by the devil. He was pumping into our brains through all the media, uh, thinking television too and uh, music industry and everything, pumping into our brains everything that he needed to pump into our brains to brainwash us to think the way he wanted us to think. Because as a man thinks in his heart, what? So is he. If Satan control the, can control the way you think, he can control the way you live. That's why the Bible says once you get saved, don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How is that accomplished? Getting into the Word. And letting God's Word cleanse your thoughts, unbrainwash you in the way Satan wants you to think, so that you are reprogrammed. To think like a child of God and therefore honor God by the way you live. Look, salvation is when a person receives Christ as their Savior and moves from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life. Very important that we understand it. Turn to Ephesians 2. Um, you all know this, but let me read it to you. Ephesians 2, starting with verse 1. I mean, Paul talks about this very thing. In you he made alive, 
who were at one time dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. So you were in Satan's kingdom. He was the god of this world. Uh, he is the god of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit, who now works in the children of disobedience, controlling them, getting them to think the way he wants, live the way he wants. I mean, he was their master, or is their master if they don't know Christ. He was our master. Um, verse 3, among whom, we, uh, whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. But God, thank you for those two words. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It was a gift. We didn't earn salvation. It was a gift of God we received by faith. You don't have to turn to these, but Colossians 1, verse 13, Paul said, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For in Adam all die. Even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Listen, guys, the family of Adam bears a blood curse upon it. The family of Adam bears a blood curse upon it. Read Genesis 3. Every human being, every human being born upon the earth is a member, are you ready? Of Adam's family. Ooh, the Adam's family, that's scary stuff. Every human being born on the earth is a member of Adam's family under the curse. And as such, they are born, the Bible tells us, separated from God, children of wrath, destined to spend eternity in hell, the lake of fire. The only way for a person to escape the curse and ultimate judgment on the family of Adam <laughs> is to be born into another family that doesn't bear a blood curse. And guys, there's only one family that fits that description, the family of God. The good news is that God is inviting anyone, anyone who is willing to be a part of his family to come. Now, here's the thing. You can't join the family of God just like you can't join the church of Jesus Christ. Oh, you can join a church. I'm talking about the body of Christ, the real church. You can't join the church of Jesus Christ, nor can you join the family of God. You have to be born into them, and you're born into both at the same time. What you have to do, of course, is believe in Jesus Christ and receive him as your Savior, at which time a person is born into the family of God and they pass from death, judgment, into glorious, everlasting life. But listen, listen. Part of what it means to believe in Jesus is to believe that he is almighty God in human form. Jesus went on to stress that to, those, to these very Pharisees that there is no salvation for those who reject him as the great I am. John 8, 21, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Verse 24, we'll end with this. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins 
For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, as you notice that the word he in verse 24 is in italics, which means it's not there in the Greek. It was added by the translators to help clarify what they believed Jesus was saying. And sometimes it does help. This time it doesn't. This time it doesn't clarify, it confuses or clouds the issue of what Jesus Christ was actually saying. What Jesus is really saying is this to these men. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. In other words, go to hell if you do not believe that I am. You will die in your sins. Again, the name of God, right? He is saying that there is no salvation for those. I don't care. Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe Jesus is a mighty God. The first created being of Jehovah God who was almighty. That's heresy. Jesus Christ is not a created being. He's the creator. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, by him all things were made. Nothing was made, without, he, nothing was made without him making it. This is what is known as an essential doctrine for salvation. For a person to be forgiven of their sins and go to heaven, they must believe that Jesus is Jehovah God or Yahweh, whatever you want to the great I am. It's non-negotiable, guys. It's non-negotiable. Doesn't matter how religious a person, these Pharisees and scribes were very religious. Doesn't matter. They rejected Jesus as the great I am. And therefore, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. In closing, let me just say this. In this section of John's Gospel, Jesus has been talking about spiritual light embodied in him, as opposed to spiritual darkness as embodied in the scribes and Pharisees. In John 1, verses 4 and 5, we read the word, Jesus Christ gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And then again, John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because, listen, you will have the light that leads to life. God's word teaches that mankind is in darkness and that mankind's greatest need is for an enlightenment, for enlightenment. Not a metaphysical enlightenment, not a scientific enlightenment. A spiritual enlightenment, but man needs spiritual light that comes from God. Of course, spiritual light, as we said, is truth. The truth of God revealed to man. Theologians call it special revelation. Special revelation, what is it? You have it in your lap. It's called the Bible. God's word is truth. And therefore, it is light. Spiritual light is the revelation of God found in his word and declared by his son. Jesus promised us right here that if we would follow him, his words, that we would have light that leads to life. Now look, as Christians, we all believe that, right? If I would to, 
to interview each one of you separately and say, do you believe God's word is truth? You say, yes. Do you believe it's light? Oh, yes. Do you believe if you walk in its light, you'll never stumble in darkness? Absolutely. So then why don't we do that more often? You know? We give the, God, the word of God lip service. We really believe it is what it claims to be. I can't tell you, though, how many Christians over the years, people have been Christians for, for a long time, um, and, and talk about the Bible in those terms, and yet when an important life decision comes their way, they don't pray, they don't get into the Word, they wing it. And they do what they feel is right. And then they get off into the weeds, right? They, they, they crash and burn, and what happens? They turn around and blame God for not being faithful. Now, God, why did you let my life crash and burn like that? You know, don't you know I'm your child? You're supposed to watch over me. And the Lord is saying, I will watch over you, but you've got to walk in my light. You just can't wing it and go off on your own and expect me to, you know, and I'm convinced he does go with us and protect us as much, uh, much more than we deserve. But the idea is that we will continue to walk on the path that he has lit for us from his word. We will not stumble in darkness. We will have light that will give us the best life God intended for us. We have to understand this. God has given us light, his word. We give it lip service, but we often don't really live according to what it says. We pick and choose. Sometimes we just toss it out the window and do what we feel. And we get into problems. Uh, I think Jesus is telling us here, guys, walk in my light and I will make sure you have the best life for God's glory you can ever have. May God give us grace to do that. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is light. Give us grace, Lord, to, to uh, feed on it meditate on it, and by your grace to live it, that we would not stumble in darkness, that we would not get off the right path, but that, Lord, you would lead us in the right way, and that, Lord, you would bless our lives in a way that would bring you the most glory. So, Lord, we thank you for this. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.